Welcome to the Public Sector Marketing Show, a podcast for government and public sector marketing professionals who want to level up their digital marketing and social media knowledge, skills, and strategic thinking. And now, welcome your host, Joanne Sweeney. Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Public Sector Marketing Show. Welcome to the age of insight where data informs action. Data-driven marketing, data-driven journalism, data-driven storytelling. Put simply, you can put data-driven before any marketing term and you're on to a winner. In today's show, I'm going to deep dive into the role of data right now and why the age of insight is so important for public sector marketing pros and how it can inform your 2022 communication strategy. Coming up in this episode, why data tells the best stories, how to rocket engagement rate with data-driven storytelling, what we can learn from Spotify and how they wrap up the year for their customers, seven ways to use data for storytelling, and I speak to a data journalist, and they tell me how media and PR is changing and will be changed forever. In today's column, I'm sharing with you my thoughts on why data drives better engagement when it comes to storytelling. Have you wrapped up your Spotify Insights this year? It's a great feature from the music streaming site. So at the end of every year, they offer their customers the Spotify Rewind. And it tells you what were your most listened to artists, what were your most listened to podcasts, what was the most listened to song. Now, when I had a look at mine, I was completely shocked. I didn't know I was such an Ed Sheeran fan. So there you go. Spotify knows me better than I know myself. But how can we apply this to public sector marketing? What if we could understand the citizen more? What if we understood their concerns a little bit more? What if we understood why they are rejecting our policies or our legislation? Well, you can do that if you deep dive into the data. Because data guarantees that you're going to get engagement on your content. Why? Because the public are sharing with you exactly what they think. You then take those opinions and that pushback and you turn it into content to try and convert negativity to positivity, to hate, to empathy, to inaction, to action. And so when you deep dive into the insights and you really are discerning about looking at the numbers and the metrics behind all of those digital actions that the public take, you are really in a position of power. And that power brokering with the public is all about building trust and demonstrating transparency. So let me give you another practical example of how data can be used for public sector marketing. One of the tools that I use on a weekly basis for my own research is Google Trends. So Google Trends is a free tool. You can just Google Google Trends. And what you can do is you can see what were the most searched terms on Google in the past 24 hours in Ireland, the UK, the US, Australia, wherever you are in the world. Now imagine that power, imagine that understanding of what people are talking about and what happens if they're Googling and they're searching for something that relates to you. So for example, in Ireland recently, one of the most searched terms was face masks for children because regulations changed 
and children now from the age of nine now have to wear face masks at school. So when we lean into the data, we get a better understanding of where the public are coming from, but we also identify the gaps in our communication. So after you finish listening to this show, maybe you're listening to it on Spotify, go ahead and check out your Spotify Rewind for 2021 and let that inspire you into how data can inform action. Level up your digital skills by taking our diploma in digital marketing, plus gain an industry qualification. Use the code DIGITALMARKETING20 for a 20% discount. Visit publicsectormarketingpros.com. So in today's consulting segment, I'm going to share with you seven ways that you can use your data for storytelling. I told you about Spotify and the fact that I didn't realize I was such an Ed Sheeran fan. Also, Spotify told me about my top podcasts in 2021. And surprise, surprise, the public sector marketing show is there, but it's sitting at number five. So again, the storytelling aspect of data is so much fun, but it can be really useful. So let's deep dive into that usefulness. So what can data do to help you improve your storytelling and how should you use it? Well, firstly, it allows you to listen to the public to hear what they're saying, and then to see them by creating content and messages that really resonates with them. So with decreasing organic reach and engagement into 2022, you really need to change your strategy. And for me, the best way to do that is to use data and insights and really understand what the public care about. And if they feel seen, heard, and listened to, then you're on to a winner. Number two is upcycle your most popular content online. This is low-hanging fruit when it comes to digital marketing and social media because if the public are consuming a couple of pieces of content on your website, on your YouTube channel, um, or on any other digital channel, then that is a signal that they are hungry for more. What I find with public sector marketing pros is often they they launch a campaign around a particular topic and they push and go. You push out the messages, you go, yeah, that's a box ticked and we've done our duty. That's not really what you need to be doing. What you need to do is that you need to develop that story and really lean into it a little bit more and give the public more of what they care about. Okay, so number four, improve your own media digital footprint. So, in a world where cookies are kind of disrupting the traffic that is coming to our website, the algorithms are changing on social media. In 2022, we need to be really strategic around owned media. What is owned media? I hear you ask. Well, it's simply the content that we own on digital channels that we can control. Some examples are articles on your website, webinars that you host on uh, a, something like Zoom and then you take into your website. It could be a podcast, it could be blog posts, it could be e-learning material, it could be downloads and checklists, white papers and guides. All of this content can sit on your website and then can be shared right across the social networks, but again, you own it. So increasing your own media footprint is really, really important. And of course, Google is going to serve you well when it comes to discoverability and getting more traffic. Okay, so number five, I'm asking you to document citizen stories and experiences. We need to take more people into our content in 2022. And if we can take 
public service users and citizens into our content who are willing to share their lived experiences based on their engagement with you, then that is going to get us far more traction. We need to put people front of screen. Your own people, I'm always telling you that, but now let's put our citizens front and centre. Number six, we've got to correct the digital record. The infodemic will continue into 2022. Disinformation, misinformation, fake news is going to continue to spiral. But you've got to step into that vacuum and you've got to correct the public record. And engaging in social listening to understand what misperceptions or even misinformation is out there will help you get the content out that does correct that public digital record. And then finally, monitor and act on trends. Big data allows you to see trends. And I like to take a 90-day period to look at data to try and decipher what trends are coming through. And I recommend that you do that too. So there you go. There are seven ways to use data to improve your storytelling and your reach and engagement into 2022. A one-stop shop digital marketing and social media resource. Join our membership academy for 12 months. Access a library of how-to videos, template strategies, and organizational policies. Monthly live coaching. Attend webinars with subject matter experts. Meet and network with public sector pros from across the world. Use the code MEMBERSHIP20 for a 20% discount. Visit publicsectormarketingpros.com. I'm so thrilled to have Rachel Lavin from the Sunday Business Post on the podcast today. I'm a huge fan of data-driven journalists, and Rachel is a data journalist. And we're seeing more and more data journalists being hired by media outlets right across the world. So I wanted to ask Rachel, what is a data journalist? What is your job? And how does it compare to the role of a traditional journalist? It's a great interview. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. So listen, you're the first journalist to make the public sector marketing show. So thrilled to have you here. But tell me, what is the role of a data journalist? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think a data journalist is quite useful because they can give you like really large context to present issues so I think in Ireland a lot um, when we talk about issues there's a lot of he said and she said but it's also a lot of emotion that can come into topics that might be anecdotal they might hit the headlines for you know the drama of them and like there's definitely a place for that but sometimes the data can just pull you out of the present thing whether that's your political biases or whatever is the way the wind is blowing that day and say what actually is the context for this so you can give someone the context historically geographically how do we compare across europe how do we compare over time historically you can kind of get the numbers and put them on things you can maybe just pull things back to like um um yeah, just to, um, dare I say, I don't want to say more rational because there's huge value in a lot of different styles of news reporting. But I like the way data can just kind of pull you back from the present moment and try and give you a, a wider context to the issue you might be discussing that day. Um, and oftentimes data will surprise you and actually the scale of the problem might be as big as you thought or it might go in a completely different direction. But it also 
does this thing, which I really like. I used to work at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and Marion Jones used to say, heat, not light. So a lot of Irish journalism, political journalism can center around the heat, the the opposition versus the government or or this person versus that person. Um, but you kind of find yourself reading a lot of news stories and you don't find yourself getting more informed um, about the issue at stake rather than the maybe the drama that is happening around the issue. So data can be a really great way to focus solely on an issue um, and it gives light rather than heat, if that makes sense. Um, and it can also then, when you open source data and you make things hugely available to people and you try and explain methods and, and try and pull people into this like learning process with you and show them how you found something out and how you're trying to interpret different data sets, um, the public actually like they love it and like a lot of my readers and followers love to get engaged and asking me questions um i think a lot of journalists get a lot of heat back on twitter as well they might get a lot of criticism or, or antagonism but i i've been so lucky with people i've interacted with it's always they've been asking questions and trying to seek out answers so it's like you're inviting people to come and look at an issue with you and investigate it with you in a kind of scientific way and and the way that they engage with it is maybe a little different to the type of previous general reporting I've done, I find it's, um, yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, I really like my followers. They're always really intriguing and they'll challenge you, but it's always like in a really healthy way, a really healthy kind of engagement. So I think that was a really long answer that didn't really answer your question, but that's just my rant about my first impressions of data training. We're really getting warmed up. It's great. So... <laughs> Currently the only data journalist in Ireland working with the Sunday Business Post. Um, why do you think we're a little bit slower to the curve compared to the UK where media outlets would have whole data journalism units? Well, I would say I'm probably the only one who like brands myself as a data journalist, but like data journalism is as old as journalism itself. Um, Florence Nightingale was an earlier adopter of data visualization and graphs. If you watch the movie Spotlight about child abuse that was discovered in Boston, that whole movie is a data journalism project. They're going through these reams of priests who were off on sick leave and things, and they're putting it into an Excel sheet. That's data journalism. And a lot of my colleagues in the business post do data journalism. They just won't admit it. <laughs> I'm almost like, you are a data journalist. You just don't know it yet. Like Killian Woods, he does great work on housing. Um, so, uh, Data journalism, there's lots of people out there doing great data journalism. Another person I'd say in Ireland who really sends out to me is Mark Coughlin at RTE. He does these fabulous 3D um, visualizations because he's in broadcast. So he's doing great stuff. But yeah, I've definitely branded myself data journalist, so I better <laughs> stick to it now. I remember when I qualified, I was like, are there any data journalists in Ireland to all my colleagues? And they said there was one that she left. And that was actually Pamela Duncan. He used to head up the data team at the Irish Times. Um, and she now is um, running the data team in The Guardian with another Irish woman. So they're heading up The Guardian. I think they're both from Donegal as well, her and Caelan Barr. So they're doing great work. Um, but yeah, there aren't many data journalists um, officially in Ireland. Um, I think the reason is resources. So you do need to seek a little bit of additional training to kind of get the skills or even just the confidence is a big part of it to pursue data journalism. Um, so I was working for a while in the Sunday Independent. Then I went to England to do a master's in digital journalism, thinking I wanted to code all these like fabulous websites that tell stories. I mean, I still do do that some a little bit, but I fell into data journalism because it 
brought in um, coding uh, to the way that you tell stories. And then you kind of mean the whole class. I think we all went in. There was students from all over the world doing this master's. Um, and we kind of just, yeah, we all went in wanting to do really creative, wacky kind of digital storytelling. And a lot of us ended up just falling into the data stuff unexpectedly and loving it. And um, I've got great friends who are data journalists now in The Economist and The Times and um, Rappler and things. So it was it was really interesting the way we all pivoted because we discovered how great it was. And it really took off 2010 onwards with how computing became more accessible and coding became more accessible um, and digital graphic tools became more accessible. Around 2015, 2016, it kind of just became really trendy. There was like news stories that said data is sexy and a data analyst is the sexiest job in the world. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but there was a real hype around it and it was really exciting to go into this real niche. Um, so yeah, um, resources are a big part of it. The ADA training is a big part of it. But there's great people in Ireland trying to push for more training. Um, Bahara Harivi in UCD is actually running a part-time master's or a, I think it's a diploma in data journalism. So there's lots of people kind of trying to build it up. Obviously, um, what's interesting is the pandemic slowed down that kind of training side of things and people's ability to go to events. We used to run like Hacks Hackers where we bring techies and journalists together to hang out and do work or um, journal coders where we'd be trying to, Carrie Cahill used to try and get people to do, learn skills together. She's a great journalist, a data journalist as well who moved back from London in the last few years. Um, so yeah, we were trying to grow it. So that, that side of the social element and the kind of encouraging people down that path through training fell away during the pandemic. But because the pandemic has been such a, it's a data story, um, the thirst in the public for graphs and like the entire public have become like completely uh, data literate now. They can look at charts and understand them, maybe not as much as they would have before because they're so used to the daily numbers. So there's such a thirst now um, for the readership. So I think a lot of journalists have started dabbling in it and understanding the importance of it. And a lot of newsrooms now are looking for those skills. So it's an exciting time to be in it and it's only gonna keep growing and people are gonna keep adding those skills to their to their roster. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's a fun place to be right now. If I can convince anyone to become a data journalist, DM me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she's very responsive. And you know, put it in context, I graduated as a journalist over 20 years ago. So I was taught touch typing and also shorthand for doing courts and tribunals. And they were great at the time and I can still touch type, but my writing's awful. But even the evolution of digital comms, marketing, journalism, you really have to ride that evolutionary wave and upskill yourself because you, you said at Florence Nightingale, the notion of storytelling and journalism and data has always been around. It's the technology that's allowed us to really interpret the big data. So next question for you is, where are your data sources coming from? So like, this is about the public sector, but like fair play to the Irish government during this pandemic, or whoever is behind open data, data.gov.ae, it is a gold mine of data. And so many of my stories, I'm just looking at my dashboard in the background now, are coming from the open data website. They make everything about COVID, almost everything, not everything, but almost everything about COVID available for you to go through. So so I'm not getting like sent like sneaky little USBs from um, 
people in fedoras and parker jackets in a parking lot i'm just finding it online it's out there and it's just the ability to dig in and look through the numbers and find the stories and it's so power empowering then to a journalist so it's good for the government because that level of transparency makes it so much easier for journalists to report accurately to do their own research um and then to kind of come up with your own stories and visualizations and spot trends in a way when you open source it as well people the public can like there's a lot of like um, amateur data sleuths on Twitter, as we've learned. Um, some of them are better than others, but they're all engaging in the data about this COVID pandemic. And that all just helps people understand it. It can help um, further the public understanding, but that also can come back to government if you spot trends or things and you can be alerting uh, government of things you're spotting in their data. And that can become a new story. I think one of my favorite stories during the pandemic that was done with really, really good um, data sleuthing was by Seamus Coffey in UCC. He's an economist. And he was like, how, this is a big question in the UK, excess deaths, right? How many extra people are dying to the norm? And therefore that should be the measure. It shouldn't just be COVID deaths because then there might be less road accidents because less people are driving. So then how do we, how do we measure how bad this pandemic is. So excess deaths is the number of people dying this year that wouldn't have died in previous years. Um, so I think it was the FT or The Economist who did this for a lot of other European countries because they all reported to EU MOMO, which is an EU body. But Ireland doesn't have this data because it takes ages for them to record a death and report it. So we just didn't know. Um, so <laughs> Seamus Coffey went to the RIP.ie funeral listing website. You know Irish people love a good funeral as soon as there's a death everyone knows about it you get the call from your mom guess who died and this website is so unique to irish culture that with it's so accurate like if you compare it to actual deaths once they're finally recorded to the date of the death they're so so accurate so it's an open sourced death record so if you go through it and you count the number of deaths being posted or funerals we were able to figure out the real number of deaths in real time in ireland and then um, what Seamus did was he compared it over previous years. So he scraped the website, got the data, compared it back a few years, and he was able to guess how many excess deaths were happening. And at the time, it actually proved, it was a, it was a front page story of the business post. I remember thinking, I don't feel like this is a big deal because we proved to just be middle of the ranking in Europe. In This was the first six months of the pandemic. And I was like, Ireland is mid-range for the pandemic. Kel surprise says me but then my editor Susan Mitchell is like no Rachel this is a big story because Ireland always has to be the best and worst in my opinion it has to be the best and worst at things we're either the best in the world or we're the worst in the world we, we cannot cope with being simply average um, and at the beginning of the pandemic the narrative was that either we were the best at handling COVID or we were the worst the government said we were the best the opposition said we were the worst and there was no in between so when we were able to come out with this data and be like Ireland is actually mid-range a lot of countries doing better than us people lost their minds because <laughs> it just it didn't fit anyone's narrative um so it was interesting that we could use data to kind of just like calm down the debate a bit but also challenge some of the myths that were going around um i feel like i've completely gone away from your original question i'm just no, yeah your source and government What's is a great source for data and that's a lovely example and it's a nice illustration that if governments share more data they can then you know allow the public to view it, uh, close the gaps when it comes to public trust, because you know yourself, you know, the whole social media narrative can really drive division in terms of where the public stand on one side or the other. And then you have politics layered upon that. 
And then the rest of the 90% of the population are watching on and going, what is this even about and who is actually telling the truth? And, you know, would you agree with the statement that truth lies in the data? Or would you be more on the side of, you know, statistics can tell you a, a story on whatever side of the argument that you sit, however way you spin it? Truth, truth or, or spin? I remember I was on a radio show and they go, well, Rachel, as you know, the data doesn't lie. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The data can lie all the time. People can use data and statistics to mislead you. But I think the power of data is you can, there's a really strong um, body of ethics around data journalism. And if you even just look at a graph, just look at a graph, you can see if people are being ethical or not. If they're telling you their source, if they're being really clear that what they're showing you is exactly a specific type of, is it the number of deaths on a, so, you know, are they really detailing what exactly they're showing you? And is the headline being misleading? So I can mislead you with statistics if I don't follow a certain sense of rules and principles. Um, so definitely, and you can see it in some government columns, um, particularly I think I've seen it in the UK or some misinformation will now try and take that or, or indeed some kind of corporate organizations that are trying to market certain things might take data and misrepresent it. But if you notice, you can you, you can pick up if they're being misleading, if they're being unclear. Um, I think a great thing you can do as a data journalist is just be really honest and open. So that means I'm showing you a graph. I'm detailing exactly what that graph says. Um, I'm not playing with the axis. I'm not trying to make it misleading. I'm trying to be as clear as possible. I always be honest about the data I don't have and what I don't know. So if you're reading someone explaining data to you, or you're looking at a chart and there's a little asterisk and um, a caveat, that shows that they're saying, listen, we don't have data for this date. And this might necessarily represent X, Y, and Z, but I'm showing you what I do have. That practice of being really honest. And when I, if I do a complex analysis, I will try and be like, here's how I did this. This data was taken from XYZ. Da, da, da. It does not tell us for sure XYZ. We can't make this exact correlation, but this is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we think it's safe to assume from this data or interpret and take from this data. Um, and yeah, just that honesty. You can see it in the writing when people write about data and you can see it when they visualize it. A lot of Irish, sometimes Irish media outlets, they don't source their graphs and it really bothers me because you should source it and if you can you should link it so that person can click in and look at the exact same thing data journalism is great i think how you build trust as a data journalist is you try and practice a scientific method you try and open source your code you, if you do something really complex you try and publish a paper being like here's here's my methodology if you want to replicate this and do this again please do and if you find a mistake in my method or my coding or my analysis or my method let me know and i will update my data and you'll find a lot of data journalists on twitter have that attitude that they will publish things they will publish their methodology if it's very complex they'll share where they got the data they'll answer questions really honestly and they'll be really respectful to their readership but they'll also be really open to a data mistake like if i'm if i'm going through ten thousand data points and i make a mistake which no doubt at some point i have or i will i want someone to alert me so i can fix that 
but it's also like the margin of error in the kind of work you're doing you're quickly processing data all the time does mean that you will occasionally make mistakes and I think you need to be open and honest about that as long as you're responsive and timely and try and fix any mistakes like I think that makes you a good data journalist um, and I think that makes you an honest data journalist and I think yeah don't just look at a data journalist don't just believe me when I tell you data like interrogate my work that's my biggest thing like don't just believe me because it's data and don't just bow down to someone that gives you data. Um, it's almost like when an expert tells you, oh, the study says, um, don't just believe that. Say, explain the study to me, show it to me. And the same if someone shows you data, like it should be something that as the public becomes more used to data journalism, they're able to interpret the same they would an article. They should be interrogated in that same way. Um, but yeah, I just think with data, as long as you're sourcing things and being as honest about your methods and making it open and open to criticism, that's how you build trust with your readership. And that's what I always try and do and always trying to do better um, because I don't want people just to believe me because I'm the data person. Um, I don't want to obfuscate what I do. I don't think a lot of the time what I do is terribly complicated um sometimes people say oh you're the data person and oh that's probably right because because you've done it and I th don't don't treat me like that <laughs> and I really I still want to be challenged um and yeah I think I think the public are getting better during the pandemic they've seen the different ways people can get things wrong um and so yeah it's definitely I think good data journalism is honest and it invites people to look at the process and look at the method and interrogate it in the exact same way they would um, so that interactive side of things I like as well, where you're inviting people to go down the garden path with you of how you figure something out. Because um, it's, yeah, I'm ranting again, sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's your passion for the, the topic. And, you know, you're in a space where now the most profitable companies in the world are data companies. They've knocked off the oil companies off the top of the stock exchange because data is the new oil because we're living in a world where every digital action leaves a reaction, leaves a footprint and leaves a data metric. And I was even listening around um, COP26 and the whole conversation around climate action, climate change and climate journalism. And they were talking about how journalists really need to dig into the data and to begin to understand the data that's coming out from marine journalism, from environmental journalism, from agricultural journalism, and really using that data to interpret the science to then communicate it to the public. So I really think there's a huge onus, might I be so bold to say, and a responsibility on the world of journalism and media to actually embrace data because it's there. You know it, Rachel. You you probably can't get around to all the data sets that you'd love to cover for the Sunday Business Post. There's, there's data everywhere. There's data everywhere. Um, I love what you say about the climate because I do think well, I love a catastrophe. That'll be the next big catastrophe I'd like to, to focus on after COVID. Dare I say after. Hopefully it'll end someday. But um, yeah, no, environmental data is the next big thing. So if COVID was the biggest data story of our lives, it's not. It's climate change. COVID is the kind of big data story that alerted everyone to the value of data journalism, which has been great. It's been a great time, unfortunately, for data journalists in that um, the value of understanding numbers and understanding exponential growth and, and how to read a graph, the value of that. Um, I think our readership really value it now and our, our followers really value it. So they see the power of it. But now we need to say where next do is, the, could this um, practice be more valuable? And I do think it will be climate. You cannot manage what you cannot measure. And I think the problem with climate change is it's so conceptual and far away 
what I would like to see is, you know, the way we've got the daily COVID numbers, what if we evolve into this kind of daily carbon numbers, or at least if we could understand where we are in relation to our targets and have a constant kind of monitoring of that. Um, yeah, there's a whole world of it to understand. But uh, yeah, no, I, I agree that there is an onus. And conceptual things like COVID feels conceptual because uh, it's so grand that data helped bring it in, like putting it into a graph is so satisfying because it's so overwhelming that that's where the power of it came in. And, and climate change feels kind of conceptual because I can't necessarily see it or touch it, uh, dare I say, as Storm Barra wreaks havoc outside. But, you know, it, it feels conceptual because it's about these huge, like imaginable measurements of, you know, potential disaster and carbon in the atmosphere and things like that so that's i think where where data will be powerful and just the power of like this is so kind of point like silly but the power of a graph to help you conceptualize a highly complex issue like i've always been a visual learner if you were to look at my school books from school they were filled with cartoon drawings and doodles that were actually helped me remember the um the the material um and so i do think data also appeal graphs appeal to people in a certain way who might particularly be visual learners but also like i'll remember a graph but i won't remember what the article said i'll just always have that visual representation in my head so definitely um can be useful for conceptualizing really complex things and helping visual learners remember things in a way that the text of an article might have stuck with them in the same way long term so well you know what I'm, I'm kind of thinking about you know how you know public sector and even corporates engage in public relations try and get a journalist to cover the story try and give you the hook try and get you enticed that you're you know that you think that it's got something that you can investigate a little bit more rather than copy and paste what a PR person give you and I wonder if we've come to the stage where the press release has been disrupted and where you actually say hey Rachel I don't have a press release for you but I've got a couple of spreadsheets and you know yeah, open, I love open source data here's the link do you want to do a story I would love that yeah please send me send me data yeah 100% that would be great because if you, you think know, about it government agencies I mean Storm Barra you mentioned that we're we're living through today having this conversation like there's the weather boys um managed by the Marine Institute that um are collecting data on the wind speeds um out of the lighthouses they've got a Twitter account where they're have a, a bot account um activating every 20 minutes to update you on the the course of the storm like this is mad stuff that's really tangible as you said how do you turn you know uh climate change into something that we we care enough about to actually make a change and it, that is exactly it and i think if if government agencies open their door to the data and they're probably getting very nervous listening to me but it's this is data that they're they have access to that's in the public interest that you know should be out there then there's communications could really change for the better well i mean your primary goal is quite when I get sent a press release, um, I think journalists are like slightly narcissistic. I'm like, oh, somebody already wrote this. So I feel like it's not as special if I rewrite what they sent me and they've already gone with this line. I'm going to have to change the line to see this. Like the only thing I'll take from a press release is that maybe the quote, but I'll also call because I want my own quote. Mm -hmm. So sending press releases, it helps me like quickly understand it. But I think 
we always want to rewrite it and make it our own. Um, and same with data. Like I know the government, I know the government has a COVID dashboard and they, they put out graphs, but I want to do them my own way. And I think that are more visually appealing or I want a specific data set to take it and make it my own. Um, so appeals to the narcissism of every journalist, but also I want an individual's individual take on it. Um, and I also, I'm just curious. So if everybody knows about X, I want to go and figure out what Y is. Um, so if, if you can give someone data, you can appeal to their curiosity. Um, they can go into that set and find their own story if they are comfortable with Excel or, or whatever tool you're using. Um, yeah, it can be great for that. And you can appeal to people to do their own research and find their own conclusions or help them do so. Um, when you talk as well, it's it's not just like your your core goal is public understanding. And so if you think of it in a, again, a kind of scientific way, you're open sourcing really valuable data that the government, government has amazing data and you can get value from someone else for free, analyzing that data and, and pulling out conclusions and, and giving them back to you or to the public like that has value. Um, obviously, as long as it's accurate, you don't want anyone to misinterpret your data. But yeah, if you have such a powerful resource of public information, I do not see a downside to making it public and increasing public understanding. Different people will take from it what they want as long as it is accurate. Um, I don't see a problem with it. And I also think that it's not just journalists that that you should be appealing to. Like take, for example, the boy with the automated bot account. That's fantastic. I don't know who did that. But if you look across um, my experience in the UK, it was that citizen tech is also really innovative. Like ordinary people will, we used to do this, I used to work for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and it was the Bureau Local. And we'd take these massive data sets and we'd have hackathons in Birmingham and Glasgow and we'd have them in Brighton. And all of these people would come along and they'd go through the data sets and they'd try and find stories for the local newspaper and then on the same day across the country, we'd make it the local newspaper splashes and then we'd make it the national newspaper splashes. It was amazing because you would create a national story through all these networks of individual people. But half the people who showed up at the, the hackathons where we released the data and they started going through it were, were ordinary local people involved in the local, um, I don't know, tidy towns or the local climate group or things like that. Like, or the teacher who was just curious about these topics and they would find the most amazing stories. And sometimes those same people will go on and they'll build citizen tech. Um, and if you can get the tech community involved as well, they will build out bots that auto update you on the wind speed of a, <laughs> of a maritime boy was it or they'll build out like particularly around elections ordinary people just for the sake of it will build incredible tools that are useful to the public and um, there's more examples than i can mention at the moment but like really really simple things that can be built like who's your, my local TD website or things like that. Like the government have been quite good on taking initiatives and building little trackers and dashboards um, to help people. Like there's one for the budget every year they update, which is called where does my money go? And you can go and see how the budget is broken down amongst different departments. Um, who is my local TD? That website is so useful to people. I cannot express how useful that is to ordinary people. Like all those little tools you're building, they're massively helpful and useful and open sourcing information, but also the public can dig into that and ordinary people can go and build citizen tech and yeah I don't see a, down, a downside to it as long as it's used accurately um, you're taking a useful tool and you're making it more and more useful all the time by utilizing data to for public information purposes I think it's great <laughs> and you know what government and public sector are sitting on mountains and rivers 
and oceans and volcanoes of content and information that actually some coding and some smart kind of visual analysts could turn that into open source information that would probably reduce inbound calls, reduce the hate that they get on social media, uh, reduce the confusion over government guidelines and for whatever it might, might lead to, and just kind of satisfy the public appetite for information because digital has resulted in an explosion of hunger for information because people can get everything on this. Everything mm -hmm. is on the smartphone, free availability of Wi-Fi, Google, social media, and there's an expectation that I will get what I want. And then the bad actors who you probably know are really good at digital and, you know, orchestrating things online, they can sometimes be ahead of the curve because they understand the technology. So this has been a fascinating conversation. I've got so many ideas, but so many insights. But what would you say to kind of government and public sector comms professionals and marketers who are listening to this and who are dealing with journalists every day, but are really kind of inspired and now curious by your conversation? Would you encourage them to reach out to you to explain how you operate or maybe to chat to them about their data sources. And of course, that's not breaking any confidences, right? Because data is information that's in the public domain. It's just how you share it and how you then present it in a different way. Yeah, 100%. DM me. <laughs> I'm always open to new data. But um, yeah, if you're incorporating dashboards or open source data, anything on data.gov or your own tools into your comms, that can be really interesting. I think the main thing is like, it's not just about hooking a journalist to tell the story you want. It's just like getting really valuable, plain speaking information out there, whatever it's, if it's about climate change, if it's about these COVID numbers, if it's about them waiting lists in hospitals. If you, what I like about it is you are just giving people a tool um, and you're treating them as someone with an equal intellect to you. One of the things I hate in government comms, um, and even journalism as well, is when everybody talks about this report or this study, um, and let me interpret it for you. Sometimes press releases can be guilty of saying, we have the data, we've interpreted it for you, here's the stuff. We have this study, Here's the, we're just going to give you a top line. Um, but if I think what's nice about data is it's you can give someone a really interactive way to engage with it. You can let them make up their own mind, interpret it, go into it, and maybe a map dashboard, go in and, and find out the real detail that they want from it. You're treating them as someone of equal intellect to you who is equally capable of interpreting that data in the way that they wish to or the however they whatever they're looking for in that information. Um, and so it kind of you try and take away the mystery of the topic you're talking about and give people the minutiae of what you're going through and the method. So in the same way you would give a journalist um, press release, just say, here's what we have. I know there's different ways you can jazz it up, but ultimately your goal is to empower them as equal people of equal intellect to you to go through this information and find their own value in it. So if you have that ethos going into anything, I think it will stand to you for the public and for the press. Um, yeah, that just kind of, journalists don't like feel like they're giving spun a line. They just want really plain speaking, good information. And the public are the same. They just want um, to feel like they have, they're being not, they're not being spun a certain way. Or they're not being trying to give in a certain story. They're like, and I think that's why they really like data because it gives you a level of detail that they can go into and, and become curious about and investigate it with you in a way. 
Um, so that attitude is, is a good one, I think. Um, it's sort of like a studious, it invites you to go into it as your equal rather than a top-down flow of information. I feel like that was... No, that's brilliant, Rachel. So listen, where can people DM you? Because you've mentioned and you've offered a, the DMs are open a couple of times. Is that on Twitter? Lie to my DMs. I'm on Twitter at Rachel Lavin. Excellent. Well, listen, Rachel, thank you so much for that conversation. Um, I was loving it. Um, and I hope the audience love it. And just to say that there's listeners and viewers from right across the world. So even if you're not in Ireland, if you're in the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, Asia, I know there's listeners all across the world. This is a, a universal topic and, and not just a, an Irish topic. So definitely get in touch with Rachel. Follow her on Twitter. And Rachel, thanks a million. Great to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Level up your social media skills by taking our diploma in social media, plus gain an industry qualification. Use the code SOCIALMEDIA20 for a 20% discount. Visit publicsectormarketingpros.com. So one of our new content features for next year is our social media bootcamp. I'm doing it live over five weeks and I really want to help you understand the new features and functionality that the social networks have. So we'll be covering Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and LinkedIn. So if you're interested in mastering the new features on those social networks, make sure you take a look at our website. The free resource that I'm sharing with you in this episode is our upcoming Social Media Trends webinar. It's happening on the 17th of January. If you cannot make it live, that's okay. You will get access to the replay, but make sure you register at publicsectormarketingpros.com forward slash webinars. So thank you as always for tuning in to the Public Sector Marketing Show. We've had a whale of a time this year uh, creating this show and getting you podcasts almost every week. But if you do listen and you are a fan, I'd love and appreciate if you could share it with a public sector pro that you know, because you guys can be the best advocates for me. So from me, Joanne Sweeney, thank you for tuning in and I'll see you on the next show. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Public Sector Marketing Show. This episode has ended, but your digital journey can continue. Head over to publicsectormarketingpros.com to access resources and links mentioned in today's show and to connect with Joanne and her team. Until the next time, be sure to subscribe, rate and review on your favorite podcast platform.